So is this live or you, can you do a response and then say, eh, can I say that again? Yeah, we can yeah. do it. We can do it. Okay. Over. Yeah, Definitely not live. We're live. Well, Holy cow. Live. <laughs> we're live with cuts <laughs> and editing. I mean, it's, it's on the office intercom. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Flight Follow Podcast. Famine, wars, earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, outbreaks, cyclones, displaced people, tsunamis, Ebola. Our world is in no short supply of natural disasters and crises that leave behind a wake of suffering. Responding to disasters is one of the ways in which Mission Aviation Fellowship, or MAF, demonstrates the love of Christ in a tangible way and we've been doing it for decades. Today's episode looks at why MEF is uniquely suited for this type of work, as well as some of the challenges and personal stories from members of our disaster response team. I'm Jen Wolf, and I'll be your host today here on Flight Follow. I have seen disasters open doors. Christians lovingly responding has opened doors for longer term transformational work. I've seen that in numerous places. Um, and uh, God is always working, even in the midst of all the crises and other things. You know, in Matthew, it talks about earthquakes and famines and all these things coming. But it's it's um, it's a part of the world we live in. But God is still working, and ultimately, um, His kingdom will come. We're a part of His kingdom. That's John Woodbury. He's MEF's Global Disaster Response Manager, a role he's held for the past 12 years. Yeah, basically, God has given us as an organization gifts that are needed. And if we do that well, um, it, um, it accomplishes the vision and purpose of MAF. MAF does lots of other things. So it's a part of what MAF does. MAF globally has about 30 programs, 130 aircraft, Every four minutes, an aircraft is taking off or landing somewhere in the world. Um, so when a disaster happens, it's often in our backyard. Every disaster is very unique um, and very different, and the needs are going to be very different. So flexibility is a key characteristic. You want to right away just pray, too. I mean, there's a situation there. What can MAF do to help? We serve a savior who suffered for us. How can we rapidly serve and be the hands and feet of the church in serving those who are suffering? What does that look like? A key thing to responding quickly is work that's done prior to a disaster. So MAF has surge capacity and people, equipment, um, processes, and finances that are all prepared prior to a disaster happening. Another way we prepare is equipment, having go kits, go kits of pre-prepared equipment. So remote living kits, satellite phones, internet connectivity equipment, 
running a remote ramp, um, remote uh, satellite communication like VSAT. So if responding tomorrow, we just take kits. We don't have to go on a shopping trip and not find what we're looking for. We're ready to go. Sometimes it's not a natural disaster that MEF is responding to, but a humanitarian crisis or an outbreak of some sort. MEF has flown for several Ebola outbreaks over the years, including one currently in Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, also known as DRC. John shares about some of the precautions we take and how he visited the MEF team there to help them prepare. Disaster response gets involved in a lot of situations. Ebola um, is a, understandably a fear word. Um, and so you can have response from those involved in an area with Ebola of, I've done this before, it's um, more a laissez-faire response, but you can also have the response of, I don't even want to fly in that country. And so a key thing is bringing understanding to how can we do Ebola response flights responsibly and safely? What does that look like? Because MAF was involved in flying medical teams, also flying samples for testing, and recently has been involved in flying in some vaccines in the area to help stop the spread of Ebola. So my role was much more together with crews and those were working. We have basically a, a pandemic management plan that defines kind of how we operate. What's a warm zone? What does that mean? What's a hot zone? What does that mean? How do we operate differently? How do we operate safely? way it spreads is body fluid. So it's very close proximity type of contact. And so um, there's ways as flight crews of um, checking passengers or temperature, looking for certain symptoms, and you're only really flying medical crews going in and out. And so if they're not symptomatic, you've mitigated risk to your crews. There's very certain ways with samples. It's basically stuff gets packaged in an extreme way in basically a triple fail-safe way. So if something leaks from something, it's captured by something else, which is captured by something else. So there's a lot of mitigation and it's handled in very special ways because Ebola symptoms are very similar to malaria. And so a lot of testing happens just to affirm or say this person does not have Ebola. So it's just helping the teams there with procedures to operate safely. And if it became larger, being prepared so other programs could help and have the understanding, the kits in their aircraft, um, to do it safely. So MAF doesn't take off when things get really tough. I mean, if Ebola spreads even more, they're not going to be out the door, right? They're going to be... MAF would always be a part of responding. We might have to change where our base is, depending where Ebola is or isn't. So there might be a program evacuation involved with operating out of another country to help bring medical teams or test samples or others. So it's, you, you have to be very careful, even in security situations. I've been in response responses where we have basically an MAF program because of insecurity or a civil war breaking out. The program has evacuated, but due to security training and other things, disaster response has been allowed to come in and serve and help evacuate other agencies that we support and also be a part of critical response flying. That doesn't mean you do everything. There's very specific risk assessments we do, things we pay attention to, how we operate and don't operate. And there's also triggers that even disaster response will evacuate from an area if it um, 
gets too complicated. So we desire to help rapidly where we can help, but there's, there is a limit sometimes to what you can and can't do. Just after this interview in December, our MEF team in Eastern DRC did in fact have to evacuate their base in Niankundi as an Ebola patient was identified at the hospital there. The team relocated to our base in Uganda, where our pilots continued flying for the outbreak. They were able to return to Niankundi later in January, after no more new cases had appeared. Coming up next, you'll hear from Rick Emmenaker, another member of our disaster response team. Let's move over to Rick. Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you most recently were working on the Sulawesi um, earthquake and tsunami response. Can you talk a little bit about that and how um, how we work with partners on the ground? Yeah. Now we we yeah we did MAF did respond to the Sulawesi earthquake tsunami um, that was happened on uh, September twenty eighth of. 2018. And um, it was a big earthquake, 7.5. We heard about it. And uh, on a Friday morning, we had the team already in action uh, Saturday morning on the way to Indonesia. And uh, we didn't know what we would find there. We did know that we had a partner organization, um, Halavita, that was based there. So we made contact with them. Um, They basically said, well, you run the operations, I'll fly the helicopter. And so we got in, did some, some uh, assessment flights, found out where the greatest need was. And the greatest need was actually in the capital city, but that is not where we were needed. As we looked a little further down in the south of the area, it was heavily hit by landslides and, and liquefaction of the earth. We, we saw where we were needed the most as MAF, as Helavita. So we came in and, and we also brought in a, a Kodiak, from the neighboring island of Kalimantan. And we were running shuttles between Kalimantan and Palu City um, because there was no air service for the first few days. The helicopter was the one that did most of the relief and medical flying, bringing doctor teams, medical teams, and all the food and relief into the south of Palu that was totally cut off and isolated. So good partnership with uh, Helavita, and we usually go in and partner with somebody in a disaster um, at some point in some way. And really we go in and, and we're here to help. How can we serve together? And um, in this case, it worked out really well. MEF has the ability to provide an internet connection when communication systems are down. We actually have two um, communication devices. One is a Gator and one is a VSAT. It's a 1.2 meter dish that is portable. Um, and we actually brought the, uh, the VSAT in. It happened to be in the Philippines because we were just finishing a response there. We brought the, uh, the VSAT in and we're able to set it up in Palu at the airport and provide internet and communications for, for not only for ourselves, but other groups that were there. The, it took several days for communications to get back up cell phones and internet connections of the city itself. So we were able to provide um, internet connection and communications for, for that. So that's a pretty vital thing. Very vital. Um, in any disaster situation, communications is, is really important. Not only for communications back to wherever people are coming from, but arranging people to come 
and then getting information out, what's the real situation on the ground, and communicating that not only to our managers and people up in the MAF, but also um, people who are praying and supporting MAF. They need to have that information as well. And the only real way to get that information is people on the ground, because uh, reports are often not quite what you would think. Is there anything that um, particularly struck you about this disaster response, like an image or a story that is going to stick with you for a long time? Well, it was, it was the, you know, we did a lot of flights. Um, I mean, I think, well, we did 238 flights, 157 hours and flew almost 100,000 pounds and close to 700 people um, during this response. And um, what struck me the most was um, flying for a doctor who happened that she was an Indonesian doctor. Her husband is an Indonesian doctor and her three children are Indonesian doctors. And they grew up in Palu. They're from that area. We did a, a number of flights for her and she was bringing in medical teams from all over Indonesia, different areas, but she was coordinating and organizing all of that. And just to work with her and to see her her compassion for the people that she knew already and she loved and that we could come alongside and assist her. And she would walk in the hangar every morning and she'd say, Rick, okay, we got to pray for today. And so we would all stand around and we would we would pray together and pray for the day and what, what needed to be done. And, and she would be so excited and thankful. In the face of a lot of opposition, being a believer in that part of the world, she faces a lot of opposition. So just to come alongside her was just such a joy. And um, yeah, we just love her. So and her family. And you were probably a great encouragement to her. Well, we we hope so. <laughs> um, talk about some of the other responses that you've been a part of, and describe some of the differences. Or yeah, I've I've challenges. actually been a part of um, a number of responses. The first one being the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, and uh, my role there was was actually pretty easy. All I had to do was fly the airplane. So. I had a pretty easy back then. <laughs> I've responded in, um, I was in Nepal in the earthquake in uh, 2015. I was there off and on for several months, um, running logistics and mapping um, for that earthquake. Um, I was involved in uh, Haiti again in 2016 in, in the Hurricane Matthew, worked closely with John on that one. Um, and then uh, last year in the Caribbean, um, during all, all the hurricanes that went through, um, I was heavily involved with, with that. Um, in fact, uh, we were on Puerto Rico when having a response for the first hurricane that came through, went through, and I was on Puerto Rico when Hurricane Maria came through, um, uh, you know, a Category 5 hurricane, and that was quite exciting. So I've been involved in, yeah, quite a, quite a number of responses over the last three or four years. When we return, you'll hear from someone outside of our organization and find out what it's like to partner with MEF in a disaster response. If you're inspired by the stories you are hearing today, there are ways you can be involved and support this great work. One way is to apply for the MAF Visa Card through Christian Community Credit Union. This isn't your average credit card. When you open a new MAF Visa Card account, Christian Community Credit Union donates $50 to MAF. Plus, 
Every time you use your MAF Visa card, the credit union will make an additional donation to MAF. To date, MAF has received over $560,000 from this program, the equivalent of over 220 flights for medical evacuations, delivering Bibles, and transporting the local church. You also earn reward points good for airfare, premium merchandise, cashback, and more. MEF encourages wise stewardship and does not promote indebtedness. As you use your card wisely, you can support the work of MEF with your everyday purchases. For more information, go to myccu.com forward slash MEF. That's myccu.com slash MEF. I recently spoke with James McDowell via an early morning Skype call. Early for me, anyway. Late afternoon for James, who lives in Switzerland. He's the head of Global Emergency Response for MEDAIR, an international emergency relief organization. MAF and MEDAIR have been partnering together for the past 30 years, bringing life-saving aid to hard-to-reach areas. I asked James about last year's Typhoon Mancoot in the Philippines and what it was like to partner with MAF in that response. And just a heads up, many of our European partners and clients say MAF instead of MAF, and that is how James refers to us. Typhoon Mancoot hit the northeastern coast of Lusanne early on the morning of September 15, 2018. James and his team were on an airplane heading to the Philippines a few hours later. We had been following the storm for, for, for days, and the predictions were you know, the, the worst storm of the year predictions that it would be uh, more damaging than um, Haiyan that hit years before and killed around 6,500 people. So, yeah, we were really concerned and, and, and were uh, racing to, to get to the areas that were affected by the typhoon as soon as possible. MAF had already been there before the storm hit. Uh, I think had two or three people on the ground. And so we knew where they were, they were staying. Um, which was a good base for uh, the affected area. So uh, we yeah, drove through the night, arrived there the next day, uh, and met up with the MAF team who had uh, done some aerial assessment already along the coastal uh, region. And, yeah, uh, we had a lot of great photos of, of um, the effects of the, of the typhoon. And there was one place in particular on the coast um, where there were no roads, and uh, it was actually the first place the typhoon hit, uh, and the full strength of the typhoon as well. The Philippines is quite uh, mountainous, and so as the typhoon moved across, it, it decreased in, in speed, but this area was on the coast before the mountains, and uh, yeah, just really heavy damages, and we knew that this area would not be reached by anyone else, um, the government as well, um, just because of the remoteness of it. And so, yeah, that was really helpful for us to, to connect with, with uh, MAF. And we quickly made a decision that that's where we we're going to work and we we're going to work together with them to deliver aid. In this particular response, MAF did not use its airplanes and Medair doesn't have their own air assets. But with a natural disaster like this, Helicopters are often the only way into areas that are completely cut off. So MEF and Medair teamed up with a third partner. MAF had um, already been working with Ethnos 360, and they had some. Uh, they had a helicopter, and so we uh, 
actually teamed up with them and started doing our assessment flights with MAF, with Ethnos 360 uh, to these areas. Everything was pointing to let's, we need to work closely together to reach this population or else they're not going to receive any assistance. And so MAF was able to um, actually uh, provide the transportation working with Ethnos 360, uh, helicopter flights. Helicopter flights are extremely expensive. I think it's, yeah. Uh, and we were able to bring funds to the projects um, for distributions. Uh, we identified really the needs were um, food. Food was a big need. Uh, a lot of these uh, communities, uh, their livelihood is rice and corn. And these fields were just completely devastated. And so we, we knew that food was a need um, and, and rice was identified when we got out there and did our assessments. Um, and then we also, you know, looking at the damage to the houses, to the schools, um, shelter infrastructure was the other big need there. And so we, you know, this is what we do. We were raising funding and had um, the people to respond to that. But the logistics of actually getting there, uh, we wouldn't have been able to do that without math. So they provided the, the transports, uh, the cost of the transport, the logistics around um, getting the materials there. Uh, we would purchase them, bring them to the hangar, and then math would help with um, with working out you know, what we could get on the helicopters, how many flights we could do a day. Um, the pilot was from Ethnos 360, but we were all kind of working uh, three organizations really closely together to deliver deliver this aid. Even when we're not formally partnering with Medair or not flying for them in a disaster, MEF and Medair are still sharing critical information. There's a lot of information coming in. You have to sort of filter through what is fact, what is fiction, um, and speed is is of the is of the essence. It's speed is is so important. We we want to be delivering life saving. Um, activities and so yeah i think even in times where we haven't maybe formally partnered but we have shared information um it's it's super helpful we're sharing security information we are sharing contacts that we've made with the government we are sometimes staying in the same uh, hotel or or lodging um looking for ways to to help each other out and i think that's uh, MAF isn't the only organization we have that with. Um, there's a few other like-minded organizations, um, but that is uh, that is so essential, so helpful. Medair has worked with MEF in a number of disaster or crisis situations, including Hurricane Matthew in 2016, and a bit further back, the 2010 Haiti earthquake. Haiti, we work very closely with MAF and Haiti. Unfortunately, that was before my time on this on this team, mm-hmm. um, but. I think we were in the air with them in the first couple of days. They helped us identify those remote communities that would have taken days, if not weeks, to get to because bridges have collapsed or roads uh, are blocked. There's landslides. But to be able to hop into a plane with MAF uh, or a helicopter and do an aerial assessment. And for us, what's just as important is to, to, to do that identifying, but then to be able to touch down and do an on-the-ground assessment to, to really hear from the people what their needs are and figure out if we can be um, delivering life-saving aid, you know, within days. Um, that's, that's really, uh, that's huge. 
we're about to take a more personal tack and jump over to Rick and John again to hear about some of the challenges of doing disaster relief, including how not to be a robot. Tell me about one of the hardest uh, responses you've been a part of or the most challenging. That's a tough one to answer because, yeah, a lot of the responses are challenging in different ways. So um, I would say the Haiti earthquake was challenging just to the scale and the level of chaos of coming into a situation our programs evacuating, but still having a hangar and aircraft there, bringing other people in to fly and being a part of an air bridge, being in an environment that's just devastated, over 200,000 people died. People, you're serving people who are bringing medical help and doing orthopedic surgeries in tents on the street. And just so dealing with an emotional just issues in the midst of professionally running rapid flight operations was extremely challenging. And the team size was up to a team of 30. And so there was just a lot of stuff going on. And I would say in disaster response, we always, we did a really good response. A lot of people were helped, but we always aim to do a good response because of the level of speed, chaos, only knowing part of the information you would like and having to make decisions in that environment, it's you can't be hamstrung by wanting to make a perfect response, whatever that is. So how do you prepare yourself mentally when you're, you're in that really tough, challenging situation? How did you maneuver through that? I don't know. I think some people are wired. Um, so I was a reformed hyper kid. No, maybe that's not the way I want to start it off. Ask me the question again. I'll start out on a different track. <laughs> um, you said Haiti was probably your most challenging. How did yeah. you mentally handle it? Like, did you have to separate from the emotional side? How did you? I think everybody needs to, who's involved in disaster response, especially in the first wave, has to be good at managing themselves. What I mean is um, people... Um, we look for on our core team and our priority one call list, you're going to be responding rapidly in potentially a very traumatic situation. People sometimes respond two ways. You can get so empathetic with this situation or this specific need that you can't professionally do what you need to do, which is operate aircraft to multiply the effectiveness of all the mission and humanitarian agencies that are responding. So if you're kind of hijacked by that emotion, you won't do this well. But the other extreme is, is people will drift and kind of tune out of that and become Mr. or Mrs. Robot. And that's also equally not good. You have to feel as you drift and kind of manage yourself that I would say is something that's a personality characteristic of being able to do that in a high stress um, environment, being able to make decisions in that environment, and also just paying attention to what's important. We have tools that help us do that, but you have to be good at managing yourself. 
I mean, I, I will say that that we go into a response. Um, it's hard. There's long hours, long days. Could be several weeks with very little rest. And, and on the one hand, that's a challenge. Um, but when you when you see what you're doing and what you can accomplish, um, it's exciting to see. I mean, in a sense of we're doing something. Um, challenging can be working with with others in that stressful situation. It can be really challenging. There is an, um, an emotional side where, um, where you're, yes, you're having to deal with all the stuff that's going on around you. You have to kind of hold on to that. Um, I almost find that the most challenging part is when I leave the, the disaster and you have to process through all what you went through because you don't process it when you're you're going. And I find myself kind of just like, whoa, what just happened? You know, even if it's a long response. Um, I was gone for seven weeks in uh, Sulawesi and it really didn't hit me the impact of it until I got back and uh, kind of processed through what happened and and what we just went through. So that to me is the most challenging part. I would say you never turn off compassion. Compassion, what drives you. It, you want to serve and bring rapid relief and help. I would say it's where a certain situation, it's so over emotionally captures you that you can't do professional flight operations well because we're a part of a puzzle of whether it's medical, relief, shelter, and all these groups coming in. We're providing the logistic link for that to happen remotely, rapidly, and quickly. And so we multiply a lot of people's work. So if you are hijacked, is what I'd say, by this trauma situation, you cannot safely operate an aircraft, you can't safely fix an aircraft, or do your job. So it's basically bringing others that can help with those situations, not losing your heart. That your heart is why you're there and God's call in your life and the gifts he gave you, but navigating as you get pulled. And I felt that pull myself. I can sense when I'm getting a little too maybe emotionally involved or becoming a little bit too much more just Mr. Robot, bang, 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 get stuff done. So I have to, all, everybody has to navigate that. And so you can feel that pull, especially in a response where you're right in the midst of the devastation. And I'd, I just want to add something. I, I totally agree with what John is saying. Um, one of the things too is you need to you need to gauge it. You know, you may have somebody walk up that's in a in a in this stage, and you just have to say a few kind words or, or just hey, let's just take a couple minutes and talk about that. And you may that may totally change their outlook or how they're dealing with it. So you need to be compassionate. You need to have empathy. You just can't, like John said, you can't let it hijack you. But you need to sense when the opportunity is for you to use that empathy and compassion to use it. Or else you do become a robot. You, and you kind of push people aside trying to get the task done. Or you really don't want to do that. But you do need to get it done. Has there been a disaster response that has really changed you? I guess it depends how transparent you want to be. So... Well... <laughs> no, 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 sorry. I'll answer that. So this is a very real story. The Haiti earthquake for me was probably the most emotionally involved just to the length, the scale, the scope. A lot of stuff happened. And I was actually quite pleased with how it turned out. I would say there was, a, in the response, someone 
was being interviewed and I felt was taking a lot more credit for something that I personally didn't think they had been that involved in. And so my it really irritated me. It was one of those things that kind of irritated me inside. And so it's kind of like the conversation inside, if, am I really doing this for God and, and His glory? Or do I want a little glory myself? It's kind of a pride question. So it's one of those things I had to pray about it, go for a walk, be fine, come back. You start thinking about it. I'm really irritated again. Go for a, a walk, pray about it. Am I really here to serve God and do what he wants even if I don't get recognized? That was the battle of going on in the heart. That happened about three times and I just totally just gave up. The battle of the heart, it's just like, you know, God, I want to be about what you're doing here and what you want to do. It is fine if I don't get recognition out of this or not. And I kind of became at peace at peace at that. And it's almost like that battle happened and God decided to use me in something that I had nothing to do with. That night in the hangar, um, a military guy walked out of their humanitarian kind of logistics hub, walked into the MAF hangar and said, I have a friend who's really struggling and he, he wants to dedicate his life to the Lord and get baptized. You guys do that. And so I've never met this guy, but I said, well, sure, can, let's, let's, let's meet this guy. Let me just talk to him and you know, found out about his story, wanted to, be, wanted to be baptized, why he wanted to dedicate his life to Jesus and follow him. And the earthquake had really shooken him up. And so basically, that evening with a Chick-fil-A cup and some guys on the MAF team, some guys from the military, we had a baptism right there in the hangar at Haiti and it really was nothing um, I, I had anything to do with other than I had dealt with my own pride sin issue and God decided to use me as a useful tool in another event he was working in and just kind of brought the pieces together. And ultimately, I see that happen in a lot of disaster response. I don't have the intellect to figure out some of the things that happen, but am I a tool that can be used and that God will use in a traumatic situation? Some final thoughts from John as we close out the episode. I, I think we live in a sin-scarred world, a broken world, a fallen world. Um, but I also know as a follower of Jesus Christ, and we celebrate his birth coming, he basically came into that broken world. He came in a world and suffered. He reached out and healed people who were sick. And so we're basically doing the things Jesus asked us to do. And so even when I don't understand why, I can always be the fragrance of him serving those who are suffering. I know God wants to work through us to serve and help those who are suffering. I know God can use people who care for people in that situation to be his hands and feet and to change their situation and to move in hearts. And sometimes God can change just me, um, just by being willing to do something that is maybe beyond what I can do and actually see him work and do things that I know weren't my ability, but seeing God work in a difficult situation just as he came to this earth and worked in our situation 
and was persecuted, suffered, and still loved, and ultimately died for us. Um, and so we serve a suffering Savior who calls us to serve those who are suffering. Suffering. So even if I don't understand the why of everything, when I get to heaven, maybe I'll know the why. Or sometimes, or maybe I'll also just weep with Jesus for those, the sin and the selfishness that causes so much destruction on our earth. It was four, John. It was four. It's a new record? Yeah, I'm encouraging you. It's four. Yeah, there's about five minutes worth of stuff we can probably use from this Cool. Flight Follow is a production of Mission Aviation Fellowship, where we use aviation and technology to bring the love of Jesus Christ to isolated people. To learn more about this unique ministry, visit maf.org, where you'll find the latest news and stories from our programs around the world, read updates from our missionaries, and learn about job and volunteer opportunities. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to follow our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Special thanks goes out to John Woodbury, Rick Emmenaker, and James McDowell, and to the awesome team that brings these episodes together. Tracy Worry, our Director of Marketing Communication, Chris Burgess, our Communication and Media Manager, and Lem Malabuyo, our Editor. Thanks for listening to Flight Follow. Until next time, this is Jen Wolf, signing clear. <laughs>